life's a plate of cookie dough And you can try to eat it slow But you can miss it out So do it and let it work out Hey, I'm Dope's fearless leader and sober entrepreneur, Kelsey Moreira, and it's time to get real. Each episode, you'll hear raw conversations that feed your soul with entrepreneurs, movers, shakers, and honestly, just plain badasses. These awesome humans have navigated life's challenges and are creating a bright future. So let's dig in. You're listening to Dope's Soberpreneur. All right. I'm so honored to be here with you, Ryan. Our friends over at She Recovers Foundation introduced us, but it honestly feels like we were destined to meet one way or another. We're both super passionate about addiction recovery and somehow two people in recovery live in Vegas. So really, thank you for coming on today. I am just blown away by everything you've accomplished. You're in recovery from a decade-long opioid addiction, and you've since dedicated your life to ending the addiction crisis. You were named by Forbes as a top social entrepreneur in the recovery movement, and you've gone on to launch game-changing initiatives like the Voices Project and the annual conference Mobilize Recovery, which I can't wait to be a part of in September. And with that, a big, giant, warm welcome, Ryan Hampton to Soberpreneur. Oh my gosh, Kelsey, it's so good to be here. And I can't believe I've been in Vegas now for like years and we're just meeting. I'm so excited. I'm so grateful to be on your podcast. And likewise, I think everything you're doing is just amazing. We're like kindred spirits. And it's funny to meet another person, not only in recovery, but like your life is about trying to work on this crisis. And we're both here in Vegas and people are always like, you're sober and you live in Vegas. Do you ever get that? <laughs> I do. And, I, and and I'm always telling people too, they're like, Vegas, sober. It's like, we have mobilized recovery in Vegas. So they're like, why would you do that in Vegas? It's Sin City. And I'm like, well, you know, if you kind of look at it, I mean, yes, it's Sin City, which means Vegas also is extra big when it comes to recovery. So yeah, with one comes the other, it seems. And I used to get asked that all the time when I decided to move dope to Vegas and we had opened a store on the strip and I said, well, if I'm focused on addiction recovery and mental health, where better to put this discussion than like smack dab on the strip in Vegas. So I had a blast with that store and it's just been a great place to keep the headquarters for dope with other people like you working on this. So Now is usually the time in a podcast when we have all the pleasantries of like, oh, how are you? You know, fine, good, good. I'm skipping that BS, all the generic, how are you responses. At Dope, we've got our Dope for Hope pledge that focuses on unfiltered conversations like we're going to have today. And one part of that pledge is to answer straight up when someone asks, how are you? So with that, will you take the pledge and tell me how you're really doing? Absolutely. I could use more sleep. I could use a lot more sleep. And when I don't have sleep, I get really grouchy. Also, a part of my recovery is to know when that's a trigger. I could use more sleep. Always. (laughs) I've never quite rested enough, but it's good to know what those triggers are and what you need. We'll talk about this a little later on in the show, like what's in your mental health recipe card, if you will. Like, how do you keep yourself balanced? And sounds like sleep will be one of those things for you. So take me way back. Who's Ryan Hampton and how did we get to where you are today? I mean, honestly, I ask myself that question every single morning when I wake up, who is Ryan Hampton and how did I get to where I'm at today? (laughs) It's not just one thing. I think it's a series of moments over the last several years of my life. At one point in my career and in my life, had this up and coming political career. I grew up in Miami, Florida. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a stockbroker. And when I was in middle school, my dad actually ended up going to federal prison for securities fraud. And it was a moment that changed, I think, the trajectory of my life and my family's life. We went from being a middle-class, well-known family in town 
to my dad leaving for prison suddenly and us losing everything. And how old were you when that was happening? Uh, I was 14, 15 years old. My mom went to working multiple jobs. We almost lost our house. There were times when we didn't have money essentially to buy groceries and food to eat. And it seemed like everything got turned up on its head really quick. And so I was just kind of like an overachiever at that point. I was the person at home helping my sister with her homework at night. I was always looking for things outside of the house to fix me and fix what was going on. So I excelled in after-school activities. I got involved in political campaigns because I was a weird kid. And I always thought that if I could just do something big with my life, that everything would be okay if I could just make my mom proud. And I grabbed to like social activities and politics is like this thing I liked and excelled. And eventually when I got into high school and it was time for me to look at college, was accepted as an intern at the White House in 1999. Moved to Washington, D.C., did really well at this internship, ended up getting a job post the Clinton administration, working at the National Party headquarters, worked on several governor's campaigns and congressional campaigns, and was living in D.C. and went on a hike. And you kind of know where this story is going, right? I had an injury, ended up in an urgent care facility. They prescribed me high-grade medications, Dilaudid, opioids, and it was all downhill from there for me. Now, people often ask, they say, was that the moment you became an addict? Was that the moment that your addiction took off? And I guess in terms of a substance that I really attached myself to, the answer is yes. Opioids were definitely what put me down a downward spiral in my life. Looking back, there was a tremendous amount of trauma in my life. Certainly, the issue that I was hiding my real identity and was afraid to come out as a gay man, even when I was in my early 20s. So all of these things that were stuffed down, yes, I had this injury. Yes, I was overprescribed. But those medications also helped me deal with a lot of these feelings that I was having, a lot of these other mental health issues. And as the story goes, you know, if you know anything about the opioid crisis, you know that South Florida, which is where I'm from, was the epicenter of the pill mill crisis in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And my father suddenly passed away after he had gotten home from prison in 2001. And I moved back home shortly after that. And that's when things just went on a roller coaster in terms of my addiction for the next 10 years. What a journey. And Ryan, you know, I saved this to hear the story from you. I didn't look in too much detail around all the how we wound up on this path, more about the work you've done since. So thank you for being so open and sharing that portion of your story and helping so many others who can relate with different elements of it. I think it's really interesting how you pointed out if it wasn't opioids, what else would it have been? That there were so many other issues. It just took one first thing to say, this made you feel better than how things were and not have to cope with what was really going on. So what a blessing that in recovery, you've been able to go through a lot of those things. And what a wild journey with your dad as well. What do you think, if you look back on your path to sobriety, what was the aha moment? So you got into things getting out of control with opioids, extending from there. How did you find the like, oh shit, I should stop doing this and how? I didn't really have an aha moment before I got sober, honestly. The story goes, it was Thanksgiving Eve 2014 and I was at a point where I was actually completely out of everything. I mean, I was homeless, living on the streets essentially in Los Angeles on Skid Row and 
my mom was the only person who was still talking to me at the time. I didn't have a cell phone. I was communicating with her through a payphone, and she was begging me to get help. She was like, I don't have money to put you into treatment again. Well, we don't have money. You're going to have to find a public place. You're going to have to get on Medicaid. You're going to have to figure this out. But please get help. Please get help for me. And I didn't really want help. I was comfortable on the streets at that point. I was comfortable couch surfing. I had resigned to the fact that maybe this was just my story, you know, and this was a sad story and this is how it was going to end. And it was probably going to end with me dying. It was just a weird feeling. Yeah. I mean, when you say comfortable too, did it just become like that one day or was it the slow progression of like, this is fine. This is just the way things are. It was a slow progression. I can remember using, you know, one night and just thinking to myself and like literally sleeping on a street corner and getting my fix and thinking if this is what my life is and it is going to be as long as I am able to get high, I will be okay. Yeah. It's just so powerful. I mean, that was the insanity of where I was. And my mom, she didn't have money, but she did find a place that would accept Medicaid and that was willing to give me an assessment. And she's like, look, you have to call them every morning because they have a long waiting list. And so I had to walk to this payphone on Hollywood and Vine in LA every morning at 8 a.m. to make this call to see if there was a bed available. And I just did it out of habit. I did not do it thinking I really want help. I did it. So when I talked to my mom that week, I could be like, yeah, mom, I made the call. I'm doing all I can. I did it for her. That was it. And that night before Thanksgiving, 2014, the nurse said, and this was after weeks of making that call. She said, yep, we have a bed. And if you want it, you've got to be here like in the next three hours. And it was like 30 miles north of where I was in Tarzana, California. And I had no car, no money, no nothing. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't really want to get sober. I really don't want to get clean, but it would be really nice on Thanksgiving to like have a bed to sleep in and like get some food and maybe get a little bit of a reprieve from this madness and take a shower and like reset and then get back out here. And that was my thought. Like, I just want somewhere to sleep. So I jumped a cab, went there, got there, checked in, and was there for a couple of days. And they brought in some meetings and I met some people. And before you know it, though, I was only there about a week. They couldn't keep me. They could only detox me and then put me back out on the street. And I was back out on the street for one day. And my mom, who was my best advocate, if it weren't for her, I'd be dead today. I mean, she was my chief patient advocate, my nurse, my telehealth, the whole nine yards. Found another place in Pasadena, California that was private pay, but was willing to take me full scholarship, essentially, with maybe a couple hundred bucks, you know, to pay for meds. And they checked me in, took me in. I stayed there for three months, left there, again, two trash bags to my name with all, everything I had in it that I owned. And the counselor there set me up with the sober living who was willing to work with me and take me in until I could find a job. They picked me up and I went into that sober living and found a peer community that I plugged into and drove Uber and took odd jobs. And that was the beginning for me. I didn't have an intention to like stay sober. And I didn't think that I could. People ask like, well, what did it for you? Was it treatment? Was it the medication? Those were good things to have. It was really housing for me. It was getting into a safe, stable, qualified recovery house with peers that I could lean on and that could lift me up when I wasn't able to lift myself up. 
that saved my life and got me to where I'm at today. But it, people say, well, how did you get into the advocacy? How did you get to start the Voices Project? How did you get to write the book? All these other things. Those were all things that, yes, my own experience guided, but it was more the experiences that I saw my friends go through. It was more the experiences that I had in losing people that I got close to, people that I loved, people that were in my community who had a similar story to me, but their story ended differently. That really lit my fire to make this my passion, to make this my purpose, to make this my calling, to do every single thing that I can, screaming it from the rooftops, using every tool at my disposal to treat overdoses as a public health crisis that they are. Preach. So one of my next questions would be like, you had such an interesting journey from like, I don't even really want to get sober, but we'll see this bed sounds nice <laughs> into like, let's freaking do it and to where you are now. So if you could go back to that day one at the payphone, calling every day, you know, day one, Ryan, what would you tell yourself in that moment? Wow. People ask me this question, like, what would you tell yourself that day that you decided to walk in if it were today? I would have told myself to take it easy on Ryan take care of Ryan and don't worry about the rest, just lean on others. But I wouldn't have believed myself because I had a lot of people tell me that, that first day, that second day, those first couple of months. And I thought they were all completely full of BS. Like, I mean, I try to transmit that message today to other people that are starting off and I'm like, this person's not going to believe me. So like the best advice I can give someone now is just to hold on, just like hold on. And it's also you know, if I could tell myself something, it's okay to not be a believer on day one. It is completely okay. Actually, it's probably good because you've <laughs> got to go through that transformation. All you need to do is just show up. Yeah. You don't even need to believe in the beginning because it's really hard to be a believer until you've gone through it yourself. Yeah, it's almost like it takes the time to get all the learnings that you have these years later, and there's no amount of telling it that will get you there. So I think that hold on is the most poignant thing because it's like, let yourself prove it to yourself over time. It'll happen. Just like, hang on. I mean, not to get programming or anything, but I think that's why that phrase, it's a day at a time is so true because it's literally just like, can you just decide for today to stick with it? And then like, see how you feel tomorrow. Can you stick with it? You know, literally like each day, just committing to that. And then all of a sudden, like you're starting to see those benefits and you've proved it to yourself in a way. It's also one of the reasons that I believe in like this radical love approach when it comes to people who are seeking recovery or maybe not even seeking recovery, but need help or are just interested. There's this school of thought out there around willingness. Like you have to be willing to do the work or willing to get help. And I wasn't really that willing in the beginning. I believe that we need a bigger tent when it comes to recovery. I believe that we need to help people no matter what, no matter where they are on their journey. If someone's like got 1% in them, even if it's as simple as like they want a meal or they want a roof over their head or something like that, those are all entry points. Yeah, it's like one step closer and one more opportunity to be around, like you mentioned, that peer community to like be surrounded by examples of other people that are at their stage of going through it or have gone through it and just getting that exposure to 
that positivity and that love and being surrounded by that slowly starts to like inch it along versus requiring that every person is ready to say, I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life. It's like, how can we get people just involved in the conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really interesting. Harm reduction is another great example of that. Like I was a hardcore, still am a hardcore 12 stepper, but I mean, like I had like real hardcore 12 step, like principles though. And like, thinking in the beginning and like, what is this harm reduction thing? And like, the more I look through it through the lens of my own experience, you know, I'm someone who entered recovery with massive healthcare issues. Had someone have been there to like, offer me some harm reduction techniques, been able to like, create some trust with me as a current drug user when I was using, I probably would have found help a lot sooner. Because you got to remember, I trusted nobody when I was using. If somebody would have showed up for me like that, I may have gotten help a little sooner. So it's that principle has really changed my thinking around how do we approach people? And for those listening who might not know what harm reduction is, can you describe? Sure. It's safer measures for people who are using drugs. I mean, harm reduction is a pretty big scale. I tend to believe that abstinence, like you and I, that's a form of harm reduction. It's just like every morning I wake up and I don't have a drink or put a needle in my arm, I am reducing harm to myself. For others, it may be moderation in their use. For others, it may be clean syringes. For others, it may be using fentanyl test strips. My opinion is that anything we have to do to keep somebody alive, then we need to be doing that, no matter what it is. And all the way on the extreme side of it, as a gay man, like I look at, look at the Kinsey scale. On one side, there's the extreme, which is where we fall. And then there's midpoints and others that are further down the scale. I mean, that's how I look at harm reduction. Yeah. And it's so controversial to this topic, particularly clean syringes. I remember in San Francisco, this is a big portion of the effort of like clean syringes or places for clean using rooms, you know, mobile rooms that they can go in to use. And for some at first is like, oh my gosh, you're encouraging drug use. But exactly like you said, if you had had just that door open to, you know, I'm sure in these places where you're getting clean syringes, there's support if you're looking to get sober or, you know, there's support for the options of where you could get help. Otherwise, you don't have that door open, you know, they're closed off and they just want to keep using and they maybe don't even know how scary or harmful the dirty syringe is that they're going to use. So just all those steps to try and make it a little closer. And it's one thing I was going to mention, actually, in this discussion around reduction, Demi Lovato's California sober conversation, hyper controversial. You said in an article that recovery is defined as a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life and strive to reach their full potential in response to the hate that she was getting for coming out as California sober. So wanted to ask you, have you seen the drama surrounding Demi kind of die down or is this still pretty contentious out there? I will say it is still very contentious and I have written a lot of things and taken a lot of opinions. I have never been more attacked in my several years of writing and being public about how I feel about this than I have around that article. And sadly, a lot of it came from within the recovery community. People who just thought that this was absolutely an insane concept. And like it or not, the evidence is there that multiple pathways to recovery work. And for some people, moderation management works. You know, it doesn't work for all. Doesn't work for me mm-hmm. when I've tried it. But I have also met people who live in long-term recovery who may drink. It's not something that I would suggest right out of the gate. But there are people who used to be 
homeless and using heroin and using crack cocaine. And that was 20 years ago. And now they may have a glass of wine on the weekend. I'm not advocating for that. But what I'm saying is it is real. The definition of long-term recovery does not mean abstinence-based recovery. The definition of long-term recovery is someone who has resolved a drug or alcohol issue in their life. And it doesn't mean that you no longer use alcohol or marijuana or whatnot. I mean, that's just the United States government definition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love how you were able to put it about what recovery really is, this idea of just like overall improving your own wellness and that everyone will have their own lens with which to view that. And I'm sorry that you are on the receiving end of some backlash from it because I think it's so hard in our community in the world today to like have an opinion. And if someone else doesn't agree with it, for some reason, they feel like they need to shame you and give you all this hate when it's like, can't we just have differing opinions? For some people, this will work. For some people, it will not. And it feels wrong to try and stifle even the conversation around it when in many ways, like you said, with broadening the tent, it will help more people even be open to the idea of what sobriety could look like. I think there's a big generational shift that has to happen around what sobriety means because it's different for everyone. And recovery. like I try to use the word recovery versus sobriety because I think sobriety does have a very specific meaning to it for some. I think when I look at it through the lens of recovery, though, who am I? Who am I to tell Demi Lovato what her recovery looks like? I am responsible for me. And recovery is not, in my opinion, defined purely by the lack of a substance in someone's life. I think that we've put it in that vise for certain folks, but my recovery, I mean, look, I'm getting married. I don't lie. I have my family back. I have a phenomenal relationship with my mom. I pay my taxes. I'm a voter. I'm a business owner. I've started a nonprofit. I'm a, an active community member. I show up for people. I show up for my family. I'm a dog owner. I love my dog, right? Like I consider myself a responsible person. That is what my recovery looks like. Now, at the end of that list, I'm also a person who doesn't use drugs and alcohol, right? So, I mean, like the definition of recovery it isn't the absence of substances. It's your life. It's what you've done. It's how you've changed your life. How you're showing up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huge, huge conversation. I could dig into this for like an hour with you because I feel like it's just that overarching layer of people having a difficult understanding that others can have unique opinions. So to anyone listening, I hope the takeaway is it's okay if you see the world a little bit differently than someone else and really nice discussion on a new way to view this. And thank you for that sort of clarification on like how you feel sobriety maybe is determined versus the concept of being in recovery to each their own is the bottom line there. Let's get into a little bit about what you're doing. I mean, starting off with how serious the addiction crisis is. I know you live and breathe some of these numbers, so I'd love if you can share that and what the Voices Project has come out to do around it. Sure. I mean, the numbers you hear will vary anywhere from 172 a day to 190 to 200 and something. I mean, the real number is probably floating somewhere around 350 a day. But that is because that number includes alcohol too. Oftentimes when we report deaths due to addiction and overdose, they don't include alcohol for some reason, which is just like insane to me because it kills more than all of it. <laughs> people dying of alcohol related deaths. So we're looking at about 350 people a day that's reported. And I say that's reported because I also believe those numbers are vastly underreported. Coming out of COVID, the mental health and 
overdose crisis is only getting worse. We hit historic highs again in 2020, and we anticipate those numbers to keep going up. At the heart of this is a true public health crisis, but not to take away from all the massive and phenomenal frontline response and government response that we've seen from COVID. But if you want to look at how a nation treats public health crisis, and we have two in this country right now, COVID and the overdose crisis, you look at COVID. I mean, like you print money overnight, you make sure that healthcare providers have what they need. You set up makeshift clinics all over the country. You make sure there's massive public awareness campaigns so that people know where to get resources. I mean, the the trillions of dollars. That's how you deal with the true public health crisis. When it comes to overdose, when it comes to addiction and mental health, we don't see that same type of response because it's still so severely stigmatized. We call it a public health response, but we don't put the resources behind it to treat it like a public health response. So to the Voices Project and Mobilize Recovery and these other initiatives that I founded and got involved in, it was after losing friends of mine in 2016 and 2017. I lost a friend of mine, Nick, and a and first friend that died in the sober living home. He was turned away at a hospital in an ER room, told there was no bed for him and there was nothing they could do with him and gave him an 800 number so he could call the next day if he was willing. And that made me angry. And my best friend and I rented an RV and traveled around the country that summer and visited 22 states, traveled 8,000 miles in 30 days to visit people and go to jails and recovery centers and meet with people who use drugs and meet with policymakers and stayed in homes of parents who had lost their kids to overdoses. And we learned that there was this growing sense of frustration that there was so much talk about the crisis and not much action. So the Voices Project was founded basically as an idea to get more people to tell their stories publicly, because I truly believe that public enemy number one, when it comes to combating this issue, is the stigma and the shame. And stigma is a nice word for systemic discrimination and bias against people who are in recovery and people who are seeking help. And my theory of change was that if we had enough people who were open about their journey of either struggling, their journey of loss, their journey of personal recovery, or their journey of family recovery, that more people would pay attention. And that's how it started. It started out as a Facebook page. It started out as a project with $20 and a laptop that I bought from a pawn shop and hijacked internet from the next door neighbor while I was living in a sober living home to get more people to tell their stories. And we had thousands of people submit them and thousands of people tell stories on Facebook. And it grew this platform that eventually turned into a nonprofit that eventually turned into coalitions in 24, 25 states, now reaching close to 70,000 members and a social media reach of four to 5 million per month and a public health initiative, advocacy initiative through Voices Project, all in an effort to get people to pay attention to us. And I think that we're making headway. We've drawn the attention of big brands such as Google and Facebook and Twitter, who are now leaning in on this. I believe the more people that tell their stories, the more people that demand change, the more people that come out of the shadows, the more that corporate brands will lean in, the more that government authorities will pay attention, the more funding we'll get, the more destigmatized this issue will become. Ergo, the more people who will get help on demand, equitable access to treatment and recovery and mental health supports. That is the bottom line of what I'm looking for. And that is what I wake up every single day 
thinking about. And I think we're getting there. I mean, we're probably a couple decades off, but it all starts with an idea. Yeah, maybe we can speed that up. I feel like we got it sooner than a couple decades, but we're going to make it happen faster. I love what you're doing. I mean, this idea of community-based solutions, it really resonates with me. I love the idea of we're better together versus everyone trying to recreate the wheel alone. So tell me a little bit about Mobilize Recovery and how this came to be. Mobilize Recovery was an idea I had in 2017. I was like thumbing through on Facebook and I saw an ad from Facebook about the Facebook community leadership program. It was going to be the first year ever. And they said Facebook was advertising all around the world, said we're going to pick 100 entrepreneurs slash innovators in the social entrepreneurship space attached to a nonprofit with the best ideas from the whole world, 100 people. Pitch us your idea and we'll give you $50,000 to start it. And I was like, $50,000, like, you know, like, think about what I could do with that. So I put my name in and my whole idea was, I called it mobilized recovery. I said, what if we could get everybody in a room together to start having this discussion and sharing resources, not resources on treatment, but our human capital in terms of community-based organizing. What if we could get people across the table from each other that hadn't really been allies before? What if we had people who had differing points of view to start to agree on what we could agree on in terms of agenda items to work together? And what if we could start engaging the tech space around getting involved in this as a solution? And it took some refining, but they came back and they were like, we love your idea and you're in the program. And like before you knew it, I was one of 14 people in North America and 100 people worldwide. And in year one, we brought 150 people from all 50 states to Las Vegas in 2019 for this convening and walked out of it with an agenda and a lot of partners. And it took off from there. It became a network that grew that now exists in all 50 states. It grew into smaller versions of mobilized recovery in different states. Last year, we did it completely virtual and it was a huge success. And this year, we're doing it again. You know, a lot of different organizations haven't necessarily played well together. This has become kind of an umbrella for all the organizations to come together. And by the way, you don't need to be an organization to get involved because at the heart of it, we believe that the individual is the one who makes the most change. I was looking for something that would have benefited me in my first year of advocacy, which is what are the tools? Who are the players? What are the things I can do? How do I tell my story effectively? How do I utilize the media? How do I approach common sense legislation? How do I raise money? Basic tools that you need to create change. And we're excited about it. I mean, the outcomes have been phenomenal. We've seen dozens of pieces of pro-recovery legislation pass in states as a result of it. We've helped organizations emerge and raise money. We've brought in big brand partners, like I've mentioned earlier, that have made commitments towards addiction and mental health recovery. So you ask me what it is, it's growing. It changes every year. It becomes something different. And that's because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the community. Hmm. So awesome. I love the work that you're doing with Twitter and Google and those seeing them step up to the plate. We've got Salesforce making some moves in sober force and their world of the sober employees that they've got, making them more represented and supported. And dope. And dope. I mean, like, I, I know. I mean, a big shout out to you. Thank you. And the work that you're doing. I mean, it's transformational to be able to see that on the side of a brand, on the side of those dope cartons where it actually mentions addiction and mental health and dope for hope. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many hopes with Dope for Hope and what we do there of the inspiration, not only for like, say, another sober business owner, a business owner in recovery who doesn't share it publicly and being encouraged that like, it's okay to come out and say that you're in recovery. And celebrated. Yeah. Yeah. And celebrated. Because I mean, people see addiction recovery and they think of, and I'll put it in air Mm -hmm. quotes, like the stereotypical junkie or what society has pinned us as what America doesn't see and what policymakers don't see is the value of recovery in the community, the value that recovery brings to businesses, the value that it brings to society, the cost savings that it brings to state and federal governments and healthcare providers. We can do that by showing recovery as business owners, that showing recovery as elected officials, showing recovery as people who start nonprofits. I mean, those are valuable tools in the tool belt. Absolutely. I think it's like trying to break out from the stigma and show that like sobriety recovery is like the superpower. You get to be like a supercharged human who could just do way more. And for the business element, not only that I'm more equipped to open a business and I know a number of sober business owners because we all had this like extra energy release to go and start a business, but folks in recovery make amazing employees, just absolutely dedicated and excited and never hung over, which is awesome. (laughs) It's really amazing for business. When you look at everything you've been able to do, what would you say you're most proud of in your life today? Beyond my my recovery, coming out was a huge... I mean, I wouldn't have been able to come out had it not have been for my recovery. So it's a direct result of getting sober in my recovery. And, and most proud is finding someone that I'm absolutely just head over heels in love with and being able to get married and start a family. And it's just something that was not in the cards for me ever. And my family couldn't think, and I never thought I was worthy of, you know, and it, it's just changed my life. So that's what I'm most proud of. I got goosebumps. That's so sweet. So awesome. I'm so happy for you. I'm going to ask you one last question. We know that mental health is critical to running a business, but often in conversations on how to be successful, this is missing. For me, I've got my own recipe card with all my mental health ingredients that help me stay on the straight and narrow and keep myself true to what makes me feel balanced and grounded. And I may not be doing all of them every single day, but if I can do a couple, I feel a little better. I get like journaling, meditation, yoga, calling my mom, (laughs) you know, staying in touch with people. What's on your mental health recipe card? Music. Music is a huge one for me. I have multiple playlists and I'm making new playlists all the time. Whenever I get stressed or feel like I'm out of my element, I take a break, throw on my headphones, and I just go to a different place and music takes me there. The gym more recently has become a big one for me because I'm able to unplug. And believe it or not, my dog. (laughs) My dog is a huge part of my mental health recovery. That's awesome. Before we go today, one last thing to do. It's time for our raw truth game. I'm going to ask you these rapid fire raw truth questions to reveal some raw truths about you. Are you ready? Oh my gosh. No, I don't think I am. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) All right. What is your biggest guilty pleasure? Cookie dough. Nice. I knew we'd be friends. How would your friends describe you? Neurotic. (laughs) What's the thing that makes you the happiest? My dog and my husband. Husband to be. Which order? <laughs> it, depends on, it depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to upset the dog or the fiance. <laughs> what is the one thing you cannot live without? Oh, music. What's the one thing you could live without? Mm, 
cookie dough. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite song to sing in the shower? Oh my gosh. Anything Broadway. <laughs> Love it. Wicked. That's an entertaining morning. Wicked. Okay. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Blank gets me out of bed in the morning. Oh, that's a hard one. Living. Just purpose. And finally, what goal do you most want to achieve this year? Lose 20 pounds. Awesome goal. Ergo, while, why I could live without cookie dough for right now. I will come back to it though. Guilty pleasure <laughs> can have it in balance. Life is about yes. moderation. You know, it's a good, it's a good cheat day meal. Awesome. Okay. Last thing is just where can people get in touch with you? You know, they've heard some of your awesomeness during this podcast. Sure. Anybody can check me out, ryanhampton.org. You could also check out the Voices Project at voicesriseup.org. I'm on Instagram at Ryan J. Hampton, on Twitter at Ryan for Recovery. And you can find me on Facebook. I just encourage you, if you have any questions or want to reach out to me, feel free to ping me on social media or through the website. I answer everything myself. I look at everything. I get all the emails. I get all the messages. It's not somebody else. And I try to get back to everybody in a timely manner. So I'd love to hear from you reach out. Thank you, Ryan, for coming on the show today. We got to jump into all things addiction recovery advocacy, hearing how you're affecting change and encouraging empathy in the recovery community. To all the listeners out there, I hope you're feeling inspired to go out and make a change in the world. Until next time, I'm Kelsey, and that was Dope's Soberpreneur. Keep it raw, keep it real. But wait, there's more. Are you drooling after all this cookie dough talk? Jump over to dope.com. It's D-O-U-G-H-P.com to order some of our edible and bakeable cookie dough. You can use code keepitreal for 10% off at checkout. Thanks and have a dope day. 